It's time for WAKR's This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. This Week in Tech is brought to you by Cartridge World in North Canton, your home for copiers, printers, and supplies. Hear that? That's the sound of a sonic boom. It was made by a military fighter jet, which is the only kind of airplane that can still make that kind of noise because supersonic commercial flights were discontinued back in 2003. And that happened in large part because of the noise. Despite the glamour and popularity of the ultra-chic Concorde airliner that one time actually made it from New York to London in two hours, 52 minutes and 59 seconds, which is a pretty big deal, considering that it normally takes 7 hours and 10 minutes to get there. But supersonic flight might be making a comeback sometime soon in the foreseeable future, as researchers at NASA Glenn in Cleveland are developing some brand new technology to make that happen. So today we're going to talk to one of those researchers, Peggy Cornell, as well as Walsh University President Dr. Tim Collins, who used to be a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot and has some real-life experience and lots of great information about the history of supersonic flight to share. First, Peggy Cornell, who's the Deputy Director of NASA Glenn's Commercial Supersonic Technology Project. Glenn's one of the four centers that's part of the Quest mission, and we're leading the government industry team to collect data that could make supersonic flight over land possible dramatically reducing the travel time in both the U.S. as well as anywhere in the world. And this Quest mission has two goals. One, to complete the build of our X-59 research aircraft, and we're going to implement the technology that reduces the loudness of the sonic boom to a gentle thump to people on the ground. And two, we're going to fly that X-59 over several U.S. communities, gather data on human response to the sound generated during supersonic flight, and then we're going to deliver that data set to the FAA. Using this data, we're hoping the FAA can implement some new sound-based rules for supersonic flight that they can write and adopt, and that would open up some doors to new commercial cargo and passenger markets to provide faster-than-sound air travel. That sounds really exciting, and I'm wondering... Is the reason that NASA is engaging in this research, is there a lot of demand for that? Is the airline industry saying, gee, I wish we could have extra fast flights again, and wouldn't it be great if we could do away with those sonic booms? Is that how it went, or did it come to you as an idea from a different source than the airline industry itself? Well, we're listening to the community and working with both the FAA and ICAO, which is the International Civil Aviation Organization. And just listening to the community, we're talking things like, right now you're looking at typical flights from New York City to L.A. as five to six hours. We could cut that travel time in half to approximately two to three hours, and that could benefit us in numerous ways. And simply put, it could revolutionize the airline industry. Wow, that's fantastic. But what about how much fuel it would take? The faster it goes, doesn't it stand to reason that it would burn a lot more fuel? Or has engine technology changed so much in the past 40 years or so since the Concorde became a thing that that really wouldn't be an issue? Certainly. The faster you go, the more fuel you burn. So we're working on the technology. This technology is new with respect to what we had in the 1970s. 
We've been improving computer processing, modeling, simulations, advanced tools. That will help us to shape the aircraft to effectively reduce the sonic boom noise level. But in addition to that, specifically for fuel efficiency, we're trying to make the aircraft lighter and more fuel efficient. We're working on emissions. We've not just regular emissions that you see from standard aircraft, but because this would be supersonic, we're looking at high altitude emissions in particular. So we're putting extra effort into high altitude emissions. We're looking at landing and takeoff noise that will help with regulations of any supersonic aircraft at an airport. But in particular, we are working on the combustion system and the fuel efficiency of this new technology that would go into supersonic aircraft. That sounds really interesting to me. Now, let me ask you this. Have you guys also thought about alternative fuels, let's say hydrogen or something else, that might not involve the same kind of fossil fuels we think of when we think of jet propulsion? We continue to be a leader in exploring technology to make supersonic flight more sustainable and environmentally friendly. Some of the supersonic focus take advantage of the synergy that exists in other NASA research outside of the commercial supersonic technology that focuses on maximizing aircraft efficiency, reducing drag and noise, and utilizing sustainable fuels. So we are looking into NASA as a whole outside of this particular project, looking into sustainable aviation fuels and other variants of energy-producing means for the combustion. And the key point to understand here is in the X-59 itself, we're going to be using the typical fuel likely, it hasn't been determined yet, to fly over the communities. But we're just developing the technologies that would allow to quiet the boom, if you will, or lower the boom to a sonic thump. But the sustainable aviation fuels and other effective means that that you had mentioned are definite potential variables that could be used in supersonic aircraft, but that's for industry to kind of take on. We are doing research in those areas, and we will present that to the public, and if the airline industries or aircraft manufacturers implement those means into their particular aircraft, then, then that's a bonus. But But yes, NASA as a whole is working on alternative fuels. As you are thinking about where you might be flying over, you're located up in Cleveland. We're down here in Akron. Could we possibly expect some of those experimental craft to fly over Akron and maybe look up in the sky and say, wow, look at that? Or maybe it would be going too fast and we wouldn't be able to see it. Well, the communities haven't been selected yet. So we're still working on that. And there's a lot to take into consideration with respect to where they're located in the country and environmental aspects. So, yeah, they haven't been selected yet. My guess is that metropolitan communities such as Akron and Cleveland probably wouldn't even hear the lowered bump, if you will, because the old commercial supersonic technology, when you heard the boom, it was approximately 105 decibels. We're lowering it to approximately 75 decibels, which is similar to hearing a car door slam maybe 20 feet away. It's actually quieter than a basketball on a basketball court. So to hear that in an urban environment might be difficult. So honestly, I'm not sure that they would pick an urban environment. But again, those communities are still to be determined. 
for selection. Wow, that's really exciting. Uh, beside the fact that it would be a lower volume and we wouldn't really hear it, the idea that planes could go so much faster. So kind of give me an idea of like how fast does a regular plane fly now and then how fast would one of these supersonic planes fly? So right now it's likely around 750 to 800 miles per hour. It's under Mach 1 or the speed of sound and that's on purpose so that we don't exceed and create those sonic booms. We're looking at potentially what's considered Mach 1.4, 1.2, something over the speed of sound, which is around 800, 850 miles per hour. It it depends on the altitude of the area and other conditions. The the speed of sound varies geographically, but it's around Mach 1.4. And again, that would enable us to potentially get from one side of the United States to the other in half the time that it takes right now. So, okay, if the average plane flies at about 750 miles an hour, Mach 1.4, you said it's like twice as fast, that'd be like 1,400 miles an hour or something? Correct, Uh, approximately. Yeah, it depends. Again, the speed of sound, Mach 1 varies geographically, but but yeah. You could say around 1,300, 1,400 miles per hour. I'm imagining, you know, Tom Cruise in Top Gun, and he's in a really fast plane, and, and you know, he, he gets thrown back against the seat by the G-forces as he's going super fast. If I'm in a commercial airplane that's going that fast as a passenger, would it be the same thing, or would it be like a comfortable ride because of the new technology? That's actually due to physics as opposed to the new technology. So... When you're accelerating, that's when you feel G-forces. When you're at constant velocity, you do not feel those G-forces. It's similar to driving in a car at 85 miles per hour. You just don't feel it. But if you were to accelerate very quickly, you would feel it. So in a commercial respect for supersonics, just like we do for the planes now that go nearly 800 miles per hour, we would accelerate at a very comfortable, slow pace. And it's not until we get to a very high altitude, taking the time to get there and to accelerate there, that you'd go into a constant velocity above Mach 1. So to answer your question, no, you would not feel those two forces. How soon might we see or hear about these test flights? And then how soon do you imagine the changes might be adopted by commercial aviation? So right now we're in a phase of preparing for our first flight, and we're looking at that towards the end of this calendar year. That's our target. Once the first flight happens, there's approximately six to nine months of checkout testing with the X-59 research aircraft and making sure we got all the bugs worked out. It can work with the technologies for ground recording systems and so forth. And then we would go into what's called phase three, which would be the community testing. So that one is a minimum of a year, could be longer. And that's where we choose five communities and let the people on the ground take a hopefully unbiased survey as to the nuisance or distraction factor of the thump that they're hearing from the aircraft. After that point, We will deliver that data to the FAA and allow them to reconsider supersonic travel over land. 
all this might happen in the time frame that we're looking for a closure on this in, in 2025 time frame. And once the FAA makes a decision on that, then that's kind of us handing off. Here's what we did for the community, for the supersonic community. And it's then up to the aircraft manufacturers to move forward on this and get those aircraft implemented into the airline industry. So that latter part that I just described, I do not have a time frame for. The industry moves rather slowly, but we're still trying to enable it to overcome this ban. <laughs> That's really interesting. So we're looking at, you will probably give them your report within the next couple of years by the time you go through it and you get the community feedback and such, and then they'll get it maybe about 2025. So who knows, maybe by five years, 10 years after that, we might be able to be seeing this supersonic travel in the U.S., you know, sans sonic boom. It's very possible. We really don't know. Again, it's very dependent on the aircraft manufacturers and the airline industry. So it could be five years, it could be 10 years, it could be 15 years. It's, I'm, I'm hesitant to say because I... None of us really know. Next, I talked to Walsh University President Dr. Tim Collins. You may remember him from our conversation last year about Walsh's new Bachelor of Aviation degree and how they're working to train the next generation of pilots. But what I wanted to pick his brains about this week was his actual hands-on experience flying supersonic fighter jets for the Air Force, the early days of commercial supersonic flight, and the possibility that it might be making a comeback. You know, back in the day, we had those nonstop supersonic flights that would go from Paris to New York and New York to Paris. And it's all about trying to save time on the commercial side. The military application on that is, is that the faster you go, it condenses, it makes smaller a reaction time for the bad guys to whatever they're going to do. Well, as we went you know, into the 70s, you know, noise complaints around airports in the nation became of concern. And that's when the government started to really challenge manufacturers, scientists, engineers to work harder at making engines quieter and at the same time to be less disruptive. Because a sonic boom at 20,000 feet, there's a shock wave that's actually going underneath the airplane at the same time. So if you break the sound barrier and you're too low, you'll actually break out windows. You can you know, level trees. You can do a lot of damage. And so the technology went along, and so now we find ourselves today, we have quieter engines for sure. But we've also made advances, not just supersonic, which is basically speeds that are up to the speed of sound, five times the speed of sound, that's supersonic. If it's more than five, that's called hypersonic. And there's been a lot of research and progress made in hypersonic capabilities for air vehicles, for weapons, and so one feeds the other. What you learn over here about hypersonics applies to supersonic. What you learn supersonic applies to hypersonic. So on the supersonic side, what we're talking about is we've been unable to fly supersonic over America for decades now. And that's because of the damage and the noise issue. And then there was a tragic accident with an Air France flight on landing, and that ended supersonic commercial travel. That was sort of the, the two things that brought it together. When you're actually sitting in the airplane going supersonic it's not unlike if you go ice skating on the lake of course here in northeast ohio we know this if there's a lake or there's a pond and sometimes the ice can be a little rough 
And that little bouncy, bouncy, bouncy as you approach supersonic is how it feels in the airplane. There's a little bit of a vibration. But as soon as you punch through that, it's just like that smooth glass. And it's just like a swoosh. And that's all you feel is you actually can feel that in the airplane. You don't feel or hear anything else. So the combination of what we've learned with our ability to change airfoils, to make modifications. If you look around airplanes today now, they all have these little things that are called winglets, as an example. If you look out the window on your commercial airplane now, you look all the way down the wing, there's a little thing sticking up on the end and pointing right to the sky. It kind of looks like it's a curved wing. It's called a winglet. It's actually just sort of stuck onto the wing. And that's different than what we used to have where it was just a straight wing. You would just look out and go straight. And so the things that we've learned, what those little winglets can do in terms of making the wing more efficient, which makes contributions to how hard the engine has to work, which now has less fuel requirements. So now these airplanes can go farther, faster with less fuel by just making a tweak in the aerodynamic shape of the wing. And so it's those kinds of advances that have now enabled NASA Glenn to take this next step, which, hey, we think we can do this without actually being as disruptive underneath the airplane as what it's been in the past. What's the advantage of having supersonic flight for your average consumer? It's just speed. Yep, there's nothing else. It's just speed. And so today it takes like six or eight hours to get you know, to Rome or to England, and supersonic speed you know, cuts that in half. So it is significant, and especially for the business travelers, you know, you could go from New York to Paris, have your meeting, and fly home and be home for dinner. And that's a whole different situation than what we have right now today. So it, it can make a big difference, the speed with which commerce can happen, uh, your ability to see more things. You go to more places on the same day. Otherwise, I have a hard time seeing this as being everywhere all the time. It doesn't really make sense to go supersonic from Cleveland to Chicago. <laughs> so I think it's for those long haul distances when you're changing continents or even coast to coast, I suppose, for our own, that it can really make a big difference. I would imagine that the airlines would kind of have to parse that out, like you said, to decide which flights would be best, because honestly, the amount of fuel that they'll be expending will be greater when they're going faster, right? Yeah, there has to be a business case here. And that's, I think, you know, NASA, Glenn, they're, they're doing research. And again, as I mentioned, contributions made in the area of what we're doing is understanding laminar flow and boundary lines on the supersonic side, you know, it applies and can help us to do things more efficiently on the hypersonic side, all designed from a national security point of view of increasing our capabilities to defend ourselves and to protect our interests. Whether or not that trickles all the way down into commercial applications, it depends. I mean, we grew up, you know, in the we're on our way to the moon and they invented Gatorade and they invented, you know, a little stir stuff that you put in your water and that stuff does trickle down to us. But the the airlines They'll have to do a business case, but they're sort of at the end of the line because then the manufacturers themselves will have to say, okay, what are the changes we need to make in aircraft design and manufacturing to produce airplanes that can take advantage to the latest technologies that have been invented, if you will. And then there's a whole process to you know modify airplanes and to go through all that. And they're only going to do that if they're going to make money. They're not going to do that probably if they can't. I think in the near term, 
There may be some business case where the airlines collectively might say for some of these international routes, that could probably apply. So maybe there's certain airframes that that might matter. It won't to most, it won't to all of them for sure, but you can think of some of the ones, Airbus or Boeings. And so that'd be that whole process of deciding when and how and how much and how far and It's going to take a long time before it shows up something you and I can use. Yeah. And, you know, as we close, I had kind of an observation when we're talking about making that business sense. You know, there's certain people that want to get there and back really quickly. You know, after the pandemic, business kind of changed so that now there's not even as much business travel as there used to be because people can meet just like we are right now on Zoom and do a lot of their business face to face online as opposed to getting together and pressing the flesh in an actual conference room in Paris or Rome or wherever. I mean, there's certain people that are still going to need to do it, but probably fewer than there were back in the 70s when there was a Concord. Wouldn't you think or no? Uh, No, I think you're right. I think that's certainly having an impact. We could certainly be more efficient in what we're doing and that's happening. But in business, a lot of it's about relationships and Zoom isn't very good for relationships. And a lot of businesses, a lot of ideas that are spurring innovation and creativity, they happen in the context of that social exchange that we have as individuals. So I think over time, the data shows that or suggests, I suppose, that there's actually going to be increasing demands on air travel, which is why we're seeing a pilot shortfall. Right now, it feels like it's maybe not quite as much, but that's because they have fewer airplanes in the system. You know, we're running at about 95% plus capacity in terms of passengers on airplanes. Back in the day, they were happy if they had 80%. And so it might feel that way, but we have a lot of airplanes that are sitting in deserts right now out on runways just uh, where there's no humidity, so they don't rust out while they're sitting there. But I think airline travel is going to be every bit as important as we proceed as it's ever been. And if you take a continent like Africa, which is still relatively underdeveloped. As airplane travel starts to come alive on the continent of Africa, that's when economic development comes about. It's just been shown over and over again. So the need to you know, go from America to Africa will be driving needs like supersonic flight for sure. I think international travel will remain high and is returning. And I don't think that that's going to go away. So if we can find a way to move people around faster and they're willing to pay the price, you know, we might actually see that in terms of economic development and the benefits for the commerce and for the economy. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to add that maybe I forgot to ask? No, I think it's uh, fascinating. This is why, you know, the National Science Board spends a lot of time thinking about promoting ideas and to help our youth get interested in science and technology, particularly in the elementary school, primary school. By high school, we can talk about S&T and we can talk about studying the sciences, but it's almost too late And so I just think it would encourage all of us to make sure our children have an opportunity to be part of the changes in science and technology, be interested in that, because it is exciting. There's still so much to learn, so much that we don't know. And having students come along behind us that are spending time and effort and professional life trying to make it better for all of us would be a good thing. That was Walsh University President Dr. Tim Collins, whose impressive resume includes work as an aviation technology researcher and a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot. We also heard from Peggy Cornell, who's the Deputy Director of NASA Glenn's Commercial Supersonic Technology Project. 
Many thanks to both of them for spending time with us and talking about this fascinating project. I mean, can you imagine making it from New York to L.A. or even London in just a few hours? But in the meantime, stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. This has been This Week in Tech with Gene Destro on WAKR, brought to you by Cartridge World in North Canton.